The 1.9 trillion stimulus was passed and mining's biggest annual event just happened virtually. And what was the big news that was picked up by the general press? Welcome to Kickle Roundtable. I'm your host, Michael McRae. Editor Niels Christensen is in. Hi, Niels. Hello, everybody. Happy Friday. Kickle correspondent Paul Harris. Hi, Paul. Hey, good afternoon. And what a well-timed guest. If there's such a thing as a sure thing in the metals business, everyone is saying it is copper. It is a backbone metal for the coming energy transition. And we have with us Claudia Turnquist of Kodiak Copper. Claudia, welcome to Kitco. Hello, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. What is Kodiak Copper, Claudia? Well, Kodiak is an exploration company. We are focused on copper porphyry exploration in North America. And 2020 was a truly transformational year for our company. We made a discovery at our MPD project in Southern BC, which really changed the game for the company. Thank you, Claudia. Let's turn to gold. Niels, Biden signed a 1.9 trillion stimulus into law yesterday. Um, yeah, yeah, the gold market doesn't care. Um, we're just above, you know, like we're 1730 an ounce, uh, heading into the weekend. Um, the U S passed a nearly $2 trillion stimulus package. Um, gold should be a lot higher than 1% on the week. Um, it like, it's, it's nice that gold has sort of found this bottom, you know, on Monday we hit a 10 month low in, uh, in the gold price. We bounced off that. We pushed back above 17. But yeah, um, gold or uh, oil hit a three-year high on Monday as gold fell to that 10-month low. Um, just all of these stars are lining up for gold, and nobody cares. It's it, everybody cares about copper. Um, so I think that's that's the discussion we have. But it's just. It's, it is. It's you know all of this inflationary data is out there, and gold just can't catch a break. Paul and you know 1.9 trillion has obviously got a lot of headlines this week, and, uh, and that brings the aggregate through Biden and Trump before him up to something like five or six trillion of, of stimulus. Yeah, it's just like the 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 amount of spending that happened in the past year, like you know. It was only March 11th, uh, 2020, that the World Health Organization declared uh, a global pandemic and, and we went into lockdown. It was, you know, I went into, I haven't left my, my home since PDAC 2020. Um, you know, like that's the reality. There's been so much money printing, uh, you know, how, and it's just, I always kind of wonder, like, how has the gold market priced this in? Because there's absolutely no way I can wrap my head around the trillions of dollars that's sloshing around markets right now. Uh, we had a uh, feisty uh, Mark uh, Bristow uh, this week. Uh, he was kind of hitting out at the other asset classes, uh, crypto and equities, and uh, really defending uh, the gold space. Uh, Niels. Yeah, uh, it's you know he's he's thinking that uh, we're going to see another spike, and it's and it's. He he equated it to two thousand and eight. You know the gold price dropped. And then uh, in 2008, and then we saw that that massive rally, all-time highs to 2011. Um, gold never really had that moment in in 2020. So maybe now this is that moment. You know, we 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 hit uh, a high, we retraced, and now we're going off to the races. 
maybe that's it. That's that was was one of his big messages. That's what we picked up on uh, at uh, at Kiko News when we listened to his presentation. He's also not the only one out there saying that. Uh, Jeff Gundlach, uh, CEO of Double Line, he came out and said that he thinks the the, the bottom is in in the marketplace. So there there is some you know heavyweights in the industry who are are still bullish, and I think that is sort of the silver lining around all of this. And and let's not forget too, um, sixteen hundred dollar gold is fantastic for the mining sector. I mean, even may, maybe we shouldn't be looking at the raw commodity. Maybe we should be looking at the value that's being generated in the mining sector and 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 the 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 piles of cash that mining companies are now making in this environment. That cues up uh, the uh, short to medium term. Uh, Niels, uh, what does our weekly gold survey say? Uh, really interesting. Uh, so retail investors really bullish right now. Uh, again, this idea that you know the ten week, the the, the ten month low, um, and it was actually a, a um, it's a, a Fibonacci retracement point around the sixteen eighty level. They're all saying that you know maybe this is the maybe this is the uh, the, the the bottom in gold at least now. Um, me, Wall Street isn't quite convinced yet. Uh, there's actually only one vote that separated uh, the bull cape, yeah, the bull camp, and the bear and neutral camp. So we had 15 votes. Uh, six were bullish, and then five were bearish, and five were were neutral. So it's there's this this very much this tug of war right now. It's and and I think if if bond yields can cap out at you know maybe 1.7% or 1.6% maybe gold has a chance but you know until that reverses um, it's going to be really hard i think for the the gold market to find the, the gold market to find any traction uh, back towards its its all-time highs in, in the near term Find our weekly gold survey on Kiko published each Friday. Now, Niels, uh, you did attend a base metal uh, panel uh, with uh, financing and banking people. They did refer to base metals as being more of a sure thing. Yeah, well, it was it was actually the the mining industry. It was a, a capital investment from the banker's perspective. They paid lip service to gold. Yeah, you know, it has fundamental support. Uh, and then they jumped right into the the green metals. Uh, copper, uh, you know, like, and they just and they think that's where the money's going to flow, and it's it's hard to to argue with that when you have uh, economic growth. You know, when when Biden announced his 1.9 trillion dollar stimulus uh, uh, on Thursday, he also announced that the U.S. is buying uh, 100 million more vaccines. You know, we're as as far as people are concerned, uh, the U.S. economy is. Back to the races. We just need to once we open up. Um, there's going to be unprecedented demand, unprecedented growth, and and that's about it. So, jump into copper, jump into into nickel, jump into zinc. I guess. <laughs> Claudia, uh, I want to bring you in. Uh, what does the demand for copper look like from your angle? Well. Demand for copper is very strong, as Neil said, of the economic recovery quicker than expected. And particularly in China, that really drove the copper price and demand. 
And um, inventories are at an all-time low. And a good indicator I always look at are the treatment and refining charges. And those are very, very rock bottom, i.e. copper smelters are really scrambling to get their hands on raw material to service their clients. What about on uh, the uh, supply side? Uh, what is uh, the current um, what is a current inventory of copper that is being provided, and where might the shortfalls be in the future? Well, the supply picture, looking out into the future, is a very interesting one because simply there isn't much supply on the horizon. Many mines are getting old and declining in production, and the development pipeline is very low. Only four larger copper discoveries of more than a million pound, billion pounds copper in the last decade. So there's not much there to replenish the um, declining production. And many commentators see a significant supply gap of five million tons a year and that's an overall market size of just 21 22 million tons so really big supply gap coming and yeah more copper needs to be found Paul? So five five million tons is less than the annual production of chili so that gives you a perhaps a different way of gauging the magnitude of that mm -hmm. i mean you're never going to suddenly find another chili's worth of copper to bring into production every year that brings up a good point, uh, Paul. I want to bring in Claudia later so we can talk about how juniors are going to be responding to this shortfall. Let's switch to junior miners, but first our sponsor. Revival Gold is a growth-focused gold and exploration and development company which is advancing its Bear Track Arnett gold project in Idaho. Bear Track Arnett is the largest past-producing gold mine in the state, hosting a multi-million ounce resource of gold. The project benefits from existing infrastructure, including roads, power line, and an existing ADR processing facility. The preliminary plans are for a restart of the open hip peat leach operation, which will produce 72,000 ounces of gold per year. The whole and sustaining cost of gold will be 1,057 per ounce. The leach operation is going to be followed by a much larger scale of production. CEO is Hugh Agro, who has several years of executive experience with stints at Kinross and Placer Dome. He was also a past roundtable participant. Learn more and visit Revival Gold, and we thank the team at Revival for its support. Paul, big M&A news. Who is GT Gold and why did the world's largest gold miner buy them? Well, I'm not sure I can answer the second question, uh, <laughs> Michael, but uh, GT Gold is a, a gold explorer in the northern tip of the Golden Triangle in British Columbia, Canada, with the Tatoga Project, where it's planning to complete a preliminary economic assessment at the Saddle North deposit during the first quarter of this year. Um, Newmont, the world's gold most valuable gold miner, is to buy the company in a transaction valued at $456 million Canadian. It already has a, a stake in the company, so it's going to pay about $393 million Canadian to, um, to get full ownership. It's currently got about 14.9% stake. Um, I think the thing that um, interest, interested a lot of people is that Togoga is, is an early stage project in a region where Newmont is not currently active uh, and because Newmont paid cash and with a premium. Newmont's nearest project is uh, probably coffee in Yukon, which is more than 900 kilometers away by road. So it's difficult to see if there's any possible synergies there. Um, but there's also potentially a, a white knight aspect or elements of the transaction, given that GT was facing a revolt by two of its major shareholders, 
the K2 Principal Fund and Muddy Waters, which were looking to overhaul the Gold Juniors Board and our three directors, terminate the executive chair's position, appoint new directors, etc., etc. Um, so Newmont taking out the company basically resolves that issue. Um, it's been a week for Newmont throwing its cash around, actually. In addition to this, the company announced it's going to redeem $550 million of its senior notes due later this year. And obviously, it's continuing to return funds to shareholders. Over the past couple of years, it's returned more than $2 billion via dividends and share buybacks. Uh, Golden Triangle, as a reminder, that is in northwestern British Columbia. That's uh, where uh, Pretium is active. And then also there was an acquisition, I believe, over a year ago. And that was with uh, uh, Newcrest uh, that came in for Imperial Metals and uh, their project up there, uh, the Red Chris Mine. Uh, great to see that activity in that region. Note, I will be chairing a panel on the Golden Triangle through the Mines and Money Conference. And that event is scheduled for March 25th. Just some other acquisition news. Uh, Southern Peaks completed a U.S. $165 million deal with Franco Nevada. Franco Nevada will pay an upfront cash considerations of $165 million and pay an ongoing payment of 20% of spot gold and silver price for each ounce of gold and silver delivered under the stream agreement. SPM is a Peruvian copper company that operates the Constable, uh, the second largest underground mine in Peru, and is developing the Ariana, a low-cost Peruvian copper project. Paul, you noted Battery Minerals is buying a copper complex in Chile. That's right. Uh, Battery Mineral Resources uh, agreed to acquire the Puntiaki copper mining complex in the IOCG and Mantos belt in uh, central Chile from Xiana Mining for $21 million. Um, Puntiaki has a, a near-term path to resuming production. Um, and with copper prices bubbling over $4 a pound, it's uh, obviously a great time to bring in new copper production on stream. The, the operation was basically put on care and maintenance uh, a couple of years ago or a year ago when, uh, as a result of the fall in the copper prices. So it's uh, great to see the potential turnaround there. And I am gold is connecting the dots uh, between its uh, Goslin and Cote projects in Ontario. Yes, um, Iron Gold, I think, greenlighted uh, the, the construction development of Cote last year. And um, as they continue to drill in the uh, Gosselin area, it's about 1.5 kilometers from Cote, which is in the Timmins Gold Camp in Ontario, Canada. Um, and it's been uh, having good results with the drilling in between the areas, uh, with highlights such as 81 meters at uh, 1.34 grams per tonne. Um, so it's looking like uh, that, that Gosling Young Shannon zone um, is, is growing and growing and uh, the potential of, uh, of Cote is growing. Um, Cote is a $1.3 billion development, um, which began last year, last July, and that is expected to produce about uh, 367,000 ounces a year for 18 years. Um, it looks like there's potentially a lot more there to come. Now, Paul, uh, we uh, share notes uh, before this, and uh, Niels, uh, myself, and certainly you, Paul, we were attending uh, the PDAC uh, virtually. Uh, I was asking everybody what the reflections was of what they saw. Uh, we might have been at uh, the same event, uh, Paul, but uh, you mentioned the golden years of exploration are yet to come. What do you mean by the golden years, Paul? Well, there was a, the technical keynote was given by BHP's chief technical officer, Lara Tyler. And she, she talked about a lot of things. But uh, you know, one of the things she said is uh, a, lot, a lot of people in the exploration sector seem to have the paradigm of, uh, you know, the best years in the past because uh, all the big posits, surface deposits have been discovered. Um, but she said, you know, people are, with that view, are, you know, have a, perhaps an antiquated view, a nostalgic view. Um, but, you know, the way technology is advancing, 
is enabling people to you know, see the ground or see into the ground in different and new ways. And so she believes that the best years are to come as technology enables uh, exploration companies to look deeper, to look undercover and to find, uh, potentially find important ore bodies. And uh, one of the examples she gave about that was uh, BHP's Oak Dam mine site in South Australia, where a fresh approach to exploration um, by the team challenged existing paradigms using um, new technology, using knowledge gained from you know, Olympic Dam. And uh, within just four years, the team made a discovery under 800 meters of cover, um, outlining mineralization with drill intercepts of 58 meters, grading 2.49% copper and 1.2 grams per tonne over wide areas. So, um, you know, very encouraging. Typically, the message coming out of the exploration sector is, as I say, all the best deposits have been found. It's getting hard. It's more difficult. But so it's very um, encouraging to hear, you know, the world's biggest miner uh, having a very positive attitude to things. I thought her parallel was very strong. I mean, it was an obvious point, too, but uh, just uh, bringing in the petroleum industry and then looking at what the shortfall was a couple of decades ago. So uh, they had to uh, extend uh, they had to extend uh, the reserves of oil and then they uh, became uh, deep sea miners. And then she drew a graphic there where you could look at uh, the extension of the oil wells, I guess, starting in about the 50s or 60s. And then just everything slowly marching its way out to sea and then just kind of adapting to that type of environment. And then also you can certainly look again to what they've also done in fracking and how that has uh, turned uh, the US into uh, one of the top oil exporters. And that was just through innovation. And then that was using different types of tools. And it was she, she uh, said, bringing, yep, sorry, go ahead, Paul. Sorry, um, as you said, part of that is having a more holistic approach looking at the mineralized system as a whole, rather than, you know, in the past, a geologist found a, an outcrop or something like that, and then, you know, started looking for, for it there. But you said, again, drawing on that oil company, uh, oil experience, looking at what the overall system is. She said a, a mineralized deposit tends to be a small part of a much bigger overall mineralized system. So having a deeper understanding of that, seeing the clues there can enable you to vector into where the, the, the juicy stuff might be. Correct. Niels. I just wanted to ask you guys, I mean, and Claudia too, I mean, do you think, I always find this, this idea of, you know, peak gold or, or peak mineralization, whatever, um, you know, does, do you think gold or copper or whatever has that fracking moment and, and what might that be? I just, I find this topic fascinating and, and I do, I just sort of wonder what that, that, fracking that that technology that's going to unlock this this wealth of uh, in the mining sector i would think well, off I the think top of my head would be uh, such uh, terms as um you know electrification and then that is going to be changing uh, the types of mines that you build if you're not going to be doing them on a on a diesel basis uh you're, you're also just going to be able to get the um signals that are going to come from the prices themselves so there's projects that are out there there's there's shelves and shelves of projects but it just depends on like a you know it depends on a trigger it depends upon a uh, particularly level of uh, what is going to be happening with the prices i'll bring in paul but i mean the other thing as well too is you know look to what's going to in the nickel space look to see what uh, type of innovation is going to happen by all the investment in uh, hpal and then just uh, kind of opening up the new types of nickel deposits and kind of making them something that is going to you know making something that was uneconomic but applying 
expertise in metallurgy uh, to making, uh, you know, making processing of nickel uh, more economical. Sorry, Paul. Yeah, um, another one of the sort of technical keynotes was uh, Rio Tinto, and they were talking about full value mining. So it's a uh, you know various different technologies and approaches, and um, you know full value mining is basically looking to extract the maximum value that you can from a deposit, um, and the maximum amount of minerals. Um, so, which is a, a big change from the past, where you know typically if you I don't know a copper project you produce copper, and that was that. Today, copper miners produce gold, they produce silver, they produce molybdenum, they produce rhenium, depending upon what's in the deposit. The technologies have become available to add on a, another processing step to take another mineral. And as that mineral becomes uh, uh, economically viable, boom, they do it. Um, the, the Rio Tinto team talked about ways of looking at uh, um, extracting scandium from their ilmenite deposits ways of extracting tellurium from gold deposits. And, um, you know, they've been mining boron um, in California for 145 years. And what they found was um, reviewing their waste streams, their tailings, if you like, the tailings contain lithium. Lithium is now a valuable mineral. So they're looking at, you know, how do we do that? So there's um, potentially a lot of minerals that have already been mined. They just haven't been processed yet. Um, so a lot of companies and countries even are looking at, you know, what, what's our tailings inventory and what potentially can we get out of them? Claudia. I think another interesting trend is certainly just like in oil that people are looking deeper. Kodiak is a good example. Our MPD project has been explored for almost 50 years and everybody only ever drilled down to 100, maybe 200 meters. And that's very typically how you would explore for porphyries at the time. But nowadays, if you look at GT Gold, or if you look what we're doing exploration-wise, we're drilling down to 800 meters, GT Gold drilled even further. And if you look at Rio Tinto's on BHP's resolution copper mine, that goes down to almost two kilometers. So we're just looking at that much further, at greater depth than uh, we would have looked um, well, 10, 20, 30 years ago. I think Laura said that uh, during that technical keynote again as well, too. You're either going into countries where uh, you have um, uh, more jurisdictional risk or you're going undercover to uh, be able to, um, you know, to uh, mm -hmm. continue to feed the metal pipeline. Switching to mining, uh, the mining story that broke through in the general press, Israeli billionaire Dan Gertler lost immunity status. The story was probably the top headline in the general press. The story was covered by the New York Times. Dan Gertler is an Israeli billionaire. He has a diamond and copper mining interest in the Democratic Republic of Congo. His deals with African officials have been under scrutiny. Uh, according to Reuters, the U.S. Treasury imposed sanctions in December of 2017 and June of 2018, accusing Gertler of using his friendship with the Democratic Republic of Congo's former president, Joseph Kabila, to win sweetheart mining deals worth many billions of dollars. The sanctions were reversed suddenly during the last days of the Trump administration. The move was considered unusual. Sanctions are reinstated this week by the Biden administration. Gertler has denied wrongdoing and argued that his investments in the Congo has bolstered the company's development. Uh, Paul, in other mining news, First Majestic is picking up an asset from Sprott, Nevada. Yes, this was uh, came out this morning. First Majestic Silver agreed to acquire the Jarrett Canyon gold mine in Nevada for $470 million in an all stock deal plus 5 million warrants. Jarrett Canyon produced uh, 112, 113,000 ounces uh, of gold last year. Um, 
Sprott, Eric Sprott, the, the mining billionaire, will also do a, a private placement into, into First Majestic, which will increase his ownership into 13.1%. Um, Eric Sprott made uh, one of his biggest individual investments into a silver company last year when he bought uh, an initial 5 million shares of the company for 78 million Canadian. The headline that seemed to come out of PDAC week was Australia's BHP Group moving its exploration headquarters for nickel and copper to Toronto. Laura Tyler's BHP Chief Technology Officer, who we just mentioned uh, a little bit ago, uh, told the Financial Times that Toronto is a hub for juniors, exploration and innovation. And I think this brings you back in, Laura. Uh, that was uh, Tyler who was speaking. She said that nickel and copper demand are set to surge. Uh, you're seeing gold projects uh, being acquired by gold miners, uh, Claudia. Who are the major players in the copper space uh, that uh, would be adding projects? I assume it would be the gold miners because you usually find those metals together. But uh, when I look back and I think about uh, some of the uh, big acquisitions, I think of the Nevsun and Zijin deal uh, that you had a couple of years ago. And then, of course, you had a Zijin copper uh, that was uh, hovering around First Quantum. Uh, how does the M&A space look to you, Claudia? Well, what I can certainly tell from first-hand experience is that all the major copper producers are really looking for the next good project. We certainly had a lot of interest and a lot of people knocking at our door since we started working um, in the copper space and being successful at our MPD project. And the trend you mentioned that you have more and more also companies that were traditionally seen more as gold miners moving into the copper space is certainly interesting. I mean, also GT Gold, whom we talked about before, they have both copper and gold and new one certainly adds copper to um, their portfolios through that as well. And so uh, did Newcrest or Sejin has also been typically seen as a gold um, miner and they're clearly also interested in copper. I should note uh, that uh, the chair of Kodiak is uh, Chris Taylor, of course, who has been uh, building up uh, the uh, Great Bear uh, resources there, um, uh, the uh, popular project uh, that is out in Ontario. Um, what copper prices are significant, Claudia? What gets a project built? Well, prices at the levels we're seeing now certainly make a big difference already. And um, we will do more copper exploration and more activity in the sector, which is fantastic. I think the billion dollar question is how much more copper is needed? And that really drives what prices are required. And if you look at this green revolution, electrification, etc., there is a big demand coming on the horizon. And there are a number of, of uh, market commentators, BHP, world's largest um, mining company, they said they see $5 copper on the horizon. So yeah, I'm personally very optimistic. I think we're in for a sustained period of higher copper prices. Niels. Claudia, I wanted to ask you, I mean, this whole supply and demand picture what does it take to go from a junior explorer to an actual mine? And, and how many years are, are we looking at? Are we talking about here? Like, I just sort of wanted to you know, get the picture of, of how long this supply crunch could last. You know, how long is it going to take to actually get um, mines built in the space? 
That's a very good question. Um, copper porphyries, which are the majority, some 80% of, of the world's copper supply, are large deposits and large mines. And from discovery to actual mining, you're looking at 10 years or something of that nature. So if we don't have a discovery now, then we know that in five years time, there won't be the copper that the world might need. And yeah, these timelines are very long. Paul. I'll, I'll give you a very glib answer, um, Niels. You, you need lots and lots of money. <laughs> copper porphyries take a lot of drilling, a lot of money to drill. And then when you want to build them, you know, starting off at a billion dollars and going up from there. So, so um, it, it is a real, ch it's, it's very different to the gold space where in the gold space, it's very possible for a junior gold explorer to, to build itself into a developer and become a producer. It's very difficult in the copper space because you've got that minimum billion dollar ticket price to, to build whatever the project is in general terms. So like, I guess the, the question is, like, where do you see Kodiak in five years from now? Well, look, Kodiak has just made a discovery last year. We are very much of a discovery story, exploration story. We are financed now for a 30,000 meter drill program, five times more than we drilled last year. So we'll do lots of drilling. And the way we add values for our shareholders is through further discoveries and more good drill results. So for us, it's all about discovery and yeah, that um, it's going to be a very active and very news-rich year for our company. Claudia, last question, uh, more of a style point. Uh, what's the preferred reference for copper? Uh, do we refer to it in pounds or do you do the LME uh, copper tons? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I think the world is divided. And um, I do 50-50, I would say, and either works. Whichever uh, one's going up, eh? Is that well? <laughs> I always, always oh, use tons. Both go up and locks them, don't they? <laughs> I, I always prefer pounds because you know the, the key cost focus in 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 copper is the C one cost, and that's always dollars or cents per pound. So it mm -hmm. makes for me, it makes much more sense to always talk about pounds. Yeah, well, pounds. my kitchen screen has has tons though. <laughs> <laughs> But I suppose it's a little bit like gold. You talk about grams per ton, but then you're reporting ounces. Yeah. This is this is Canada. We have these uh, dualities uh, mixing up our uh, mixing up our metric system as well as our uh, pounds, uh, imperial, and then uh, what seems to uh, work for the best uh, for the uh, for the circumstance. Uh, let's tune to our number of the week, uh, Claudia. We always start to the guest. What is your number, Claudia? Well, my number is 500, and it derives from a statement that Viotinto made, which is, in their analysis, the world will require to enable any plausible growth in emission-free energy, the world will require more copper in the next 25 years than in the last 500 years. And I thought that was quite an amazing statement for a big company to come up with. Paul, what's wow. your number? Well, my number's actually missing. It's um, maybe maybe one of you can help me with this. My number of the week is how many attendees were there at PDAC this year? I haven't been able to find it. Usually PDAC, you know, Wednesday afternoon, they blast it out. Hey, we've got, you know, 50,000, all the world's here. I haven't seen a number this year. So we've got to, maybe, 
Any 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 helpers? I, I want to know how many were in their pajamas. That's <laughs> that's what I want to know. With, with uh, bare feet, yeah. Um, but I do have a proper number. My my number of the week is thirty eight. My real number, uh, and it's thirty eight percent, and that's the premium. Newmark paying is paying in an all cash transaction for a pre-resource gold junior. Wow. It, that just shows how much money these miners are sitting on. Like you, when you can make that kind of cash deal, it's just, it's incredible. And again, put that in context. Um, I, I ran the numbers. Newmont's total liabilities, I think is something like $18 billion. So they've got a, a lot of debts on the book, all manageable, of course, but uh, still they're preferring to return to shareholders, buy things, whatever, then, uh, you know, interesting. Uh, just uh, mentioning your uh, PDAC number, um, I years ago, and I think if you Google, it, it exists somewhere, but uh, PDAC attendance does track the price of gold. So if you're seeing gold either going up or gold going down, the correlation is very, very tight. So if you want to know what the PDAC numbers are, just look at the change in gold prices, Paul. Can I add a, another little... Uh request onto that hmm. what percentage of pdac attendees actually went into the exhibition space yeah <laughs> zero point zero no so why i just you know i can't i can't pick up anything for my kids <laughs> no little toys <laughs> niels what's your number um mine is very much related to uh the stimulus announcement uh, broke it down, uh, and my so my number is four hundred billion dollars. Um, that's the amount. Uh, that's the total amount uh, value of the fourteen hundred dollar checks that will be going out, uh, as Biden said, uh, before the end of the month. Um, I think this like we can't understate the inflationary pressures uh, this stimulus uh, is going to have. That is $1,400 that is going to real people to be spent in the real economy. Um, you could argue, oh, it's just transitory, whatever, but it, you know, it's still, that, that pent up demand is going to have an impact. And I think investors are ignoring that at their peril. Paul. People in the United States have a, you know, certain benefits for being in a first world country, you know, the U.S. mail services, U.S. postal services, you know, pretty efficient. If the people were in Colombia, they'd be waiting for weeks to get the check in the mail. <laughs> My number is 900%. 900%. Chinese motive battery output rose over 900% year on year. That's according to BMO Metals Brief. Mind you, a year ago was terrible in the EV space and the base was low. That study also noted that, that lithium nickel manganese battery chemistry was the standout battery chemistry. So if you're following along, if you're a battery geek, that cathode combination is typically one-third nickel, one-third manganese, and one-third cobalt. That's it for us. Claudia, what are the milestones we can look for from Kodiak in 2021? Well, we're just about to start drilling. Um, that's the most important milestone. I'm very excited. Can't wait to get back on, on the ground. So look out for news release of the drill start. And then um, there won't be many milestones. It will just be a lot of drilling. So a lot of results and all year round. 
How are the labs right now? Are they uh, turning around results or is it still jammed? Well, we have all our results, and are fortunate that way. And obviously, with a much larger drill program, we are also in a much better negotiation position with the labs to get some guaranteed throughput times and the like, and hopefully won't experience as many delays as everybody did in the last year. The advantage of having Chris Taylor as your chair. Reach out to us. You can follow me on Twitter at Michael McRae. That's with two C's. Niels is at Niels underscore C. And Claudia, how can people get a hold of you? Well, um, obviously, our website, www.kodiakcorpocorp.com. And um, yeah, always reach out um, if you have any further questions. We're always happy to be in touch. And uh, sorry, I uh, failed to mention uh, Paul Harris. That's P. Harris 1313. I got it right, Paul? Yep. Next week, we'll be interviewing the head of Hecla Mining. That is Philip Baker. I will be away, but you will be in much sure hands with Niels and Paul. If you like what you hear, tell a friend and don't forget to subscribe to iTunes. Now, our conversation with the head of Agnico Eagle, Sean Boyd. The gold price has taken a hit, but how have miners adapted to this new environment? Is it a new environment or is it still the same if you consider all the macroeconomic forces? John Boyd, CEO of Agnico Eagle, is back with us to discuss this and his plans for his company. John, it's a priv privilege speaking with you today. It's not often we have you on the show. Welcome back. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Let's start with updates from your company. The big news coming out of Agnico Eagle uh, up till now in 2021 is your TMAC acquisition, which you made earlier in the year. Tell us about that deal and tell us why TMAC. Well, we like it from an exploration upside potential. There's two major trends that uh, about 80 kilometers long, the resource and reserve is over 7 million ounces. And we expect that to continue to grow. And as a result of that, we've got about a $16 million exploration program uh, laid out for this year. So we're gonna draw a lot of targets. Um, so by this time next year, we would expect that uh, overall mineralized envelope to continue to grow. While we're drilling, uh, we're gonna study opportunities to expand output there. We do feel that at some point, um, there is an expansion scenario that'll work, that'll make good sense. And we just see this as another high quality project that we can put into an already solid uh, project pipeline. Okay, and can you give us an update on some of your existing projects? Absolutely, um, in addition to uh, the announcement earlier this year of Hope Bay, we also announced the go-ahead on two construction projects. One, the Amarug Underground, uh, which will uh, add uh, high quality, higher grade uh, tonnage uh, to our open pit operation at Amarug. That will allow us to increase output as we move forward uh, in Nunavut. But uh, the biggest project and the one with the uh, biggest potential long-term impact is the Canadian Malarctic Underground Opportunity that uh, we share with our partner, Umana, at Canadian Malarctic. As we announced, uh, this will be, uh, once it's up and uh, at full, running at full potential, it'll be Canada's largest underground gold mine. It'll be operating daily tonnage rates of around 19,000 tons a day, uh, producing over 500,000 ounces uh, the nice thing as well is that it, it, it significantly increases the mine life at uh, Canadian Malarctic. So what we really like about it is not just those economics and the returns that we will get, 
is our study is only incorporating about half of the known uh, mineralized envelope there. We're using 7 million ounces. The overall uh, combined resource exceeds 14 million ounces. Those zones are wide open. Uh, so this is a significant uh, positive event for both uh, Agnico Eagle and Yamana. And we're going to continue to optimize that going forward as well. The exploration budget there this year is $30 million. So lots more drilling to come. We would expect that deposit to also uh, continue to grow. Let's bring it back now to the macroeconomic environment and talk about gold and how it relates to your environment. As you know, like I started this interview, as you know, the gold price has come down from its highs in August. Has this at all concerns you from a producer standpoint? No, it's a long-term business. I've been at this for 36 years. We've seen a lot of ups and downs. And um, we were running a business without a hedge book when gold was below $300. So uh, you can't really uh, pay too much attention to what the gold price is going to do. Uh, what's really important is thinking long-term, uh, setting your business up so that you're in a strong relative position to take advantage of opportunities. And so we look out at this price environment. Um, we see an ability to uh, continue to invest in the future. As we said, uh, we're not only advancing key projects, we're also increasing our exploration budget by about 40%. So in 2021, we're spending $160 million. So we still see tremendous opportunity in our current portfolio. We're gonna to continue to do that regardless of the gold price. And so that's where our focus is. And I think uh, generally that's where the industry's focus is, is looking for opportunities to improve the quality of the business and take advantage of, of even these gold prices are really good. The industry can still generate significant free cash flow at the current spot price of gold. Does a spot price of gold affect your CapEx budgeting at all for your exploration? Uh, no, it, it doesn't. Um, we laid out an exploration um, and CapEx strategy a few years ago working within an envelope and that uh, envelope allows our internal projects to compete for capital and it was designed really to ensure that we have a significant investment in the future of the business which is uh, important and that's been a really the basis for our successful strategy but also while doing that uh, we can still provide really strong returns to our shareholders we increased our dividend last year twice um, we've paid a dividend for 30, 38 now consecutive years. We've increased the dividend each and every year since 2015. So we've been able to create that right balance. So we'll continue to do that. The gold price is going to do what it's going to do. It's going to go up and down. Uh, we're just focused on maintaining that strong, high quality, low risk business. Okay. Investors are wondering whether or not miners are moving away from the challenges that COVID has, has posed last year. How would you compare this year's operations uh, relative to last year's in regards to the challenges posed by COVID? Yeah, that's a great question. Last year at this time, um, as the pandemic was becoming apparent, uh, all of us were dealing with tremendous uncertainty. And it was a really complex time because information uh, was changing on a daily basis. And even during the day, we were getting um, you know, different information flows at one point. Um, in the second quarter of last year, we had seven of our eight mines impacted um, in terms of either shutdowns or significantly reduced activities of those sites. But we really focused on uh, three things there, keeping our employees safe, making sure that uh, where we did have uh, activity, we were making sure our assets were strongly positioned 
uh, for the second half of the year. And we had the best six months we've ever had in our 60 plus year history in the second half of last year. But we're also focused on COVID presented a lot of opportunities for Agnico, but also for the mining industry. Uh, given where mining tends to operate, we're in generally uh, in much better logistical position and we have much greater capacity to do things to help communities. So um, we found opportunities in none of it where we can really significantly contribute to those communities. Uh, we took some significant steps about a year ago where we had all of our Inuit workforce go home. We didn't want to run the risk of having uh, the virus uh, move from the mine potentially into the communities. That would have been devastating. Those workers are still at home um, because the conditions just aren't right to have them back. Um, but vaccines are in none of it. Uh, the residents of none of it are getting vaccinated. We think conditions will improve to be able to get them back to work. Uh, we want them back. They're a big part of our business. Uh, but we've also done things where at one point we were providing food hampers to over 2,000 families. So there's a lot of things that we've been able to uh, demonstrate why mining should be considered an essential business because of the contributions that are made, positive contributions that are made each and every day. And that was certainly demonstrated through COVID. Let's talk about operating strategy. Uh, can you give us your five-year plan? Well, the five-year plan is, uh, is really the 10 or 15-year plan. I think that's why we've been successful in creating a lot of per share value over time. Keep the share count down, uh, keep the risk level manageable, but take geological risk. We've really built this company on the back of uh, successful exploration success. We've made significant discoveries. It's been bolstered by an M&A strategy that's designed to go early. Uh, so we get all of that geological upside and uh, Hope Bay is no different than that. Um, we've really built this company from a single asset company in the late 90s that only had 50 million in revenue to the company it is today through exploration and early stage acquisition. So there's no change in that strategy because it's successful and it's well matched to our skills. So the focus will be on optimizing the existing asset base. And as we said, we're getting good exploration results at La Ronde, at Goldex, at Meliadine, at Kitala, at Canadian Malarctic, Santa Cruz in Mexico. Work those um, brownfields opportunities as well as working the project pipeline at a very steady and measured pace so that we keep the risk level low in terms of execution and technical risk, but also financial risk and do it in a way where we can continue to generate meaningful free cash flow and continue to move dividends uh, to our shareholders. I'm taking a look at your costs now. Your all-in sustaining cost for some of the properties is around 900 to $1,000, is that correct? And um, That's correct. I, I wonder how this uh, ranks against your uh, peers I notice it's slightly lower than some of your peers of your size. And I wonder, and I, I like to ask you about cost control and how is it that yeah. you've managed to, to, to maintain competitive costs? What is your strategy around that? Well, costs will vary by jurisdiction, but the biggest driver of costs are, is the underlying quality of the ore bodies in terms of the grade and the grade content. So we find ourselves having a, an average grade that's well above the North American peers. And as we move forward and open up um, our new projects and the new areas within our mines, um, our grade profile goes up. And that's the biggest driver in terms of managing uh, unit costs. So um, none of it uh, can be challenging. It's a bit of a higher cost um, jurisdiction. So we have to stay focused on managing the cost. But I think the cost question is one we get all the time. 
um, and the industry gets all all the time. And and it's really from the perspective of okay, this time around versus twelve or thirteen years ago, in a good gold price environment, can you deliver the margins? Can you keep the lid on unit costs? And mm-hmm. we would argue that the industry is really well positioned this time versus 12 or 13 years ago uh, for two reasons. One, we don't see as an industry the type of input price pressure we saw 12 or 13 years ago. But I think more importantly, and you mentioned, David, about a five-year plan. Well, the next five years for all companies in this industry in terms of production or costs are delivered off of the reserve base. And the reserves uh, for the industry have been calculated at 1200, 1250 for the last seven or eight years. So these are high quality reserves calculated conservatively. We, we're not seeing significant dilution in the underlying quality of the reserve base that drives the industry like we saw 12 or 13 years ago where the reserve price assumption was going up each and every year, which was really diluting the business. So the industry is well positioned and that gives the industry Um, a great opportunity to deliver the free cash flow and deliver that margin that investors are looking for. Yeah. I've spoken to some economists about the outlook on the economy. And one of the concerns people have is rising inflation in the wake of unprecedented debt levels from the, from the government. Are you, are you concerned about inflation on the front of raw materials, energy costs, wages, would that affect your all the sustaining costs? Have, Have you factored that into your guidance? Yeah, well, we're as we said, we're not seeing the type of pressure we saw on inputs as we, like 12 or 13 years ago, where we were getting letters from suppliers in the second quarter of the year already having agreed on the price uh, of key inputs for the balance of the year, looking for 20 to 30 percent increases. So it's nowhere near that. I think there is inflation um, coming. Um, that's certainly going to be um, negative in a way on cost, but also positive, we think on the overall gold price. And um, so we're a natural hedge um, in terms of an industry um, to deal with that inflation. So um, as we said, I think we've got to keep an eye on it, um, but we're not in the position where we were as an industry 12 or 13 years ago, where we saw tremendous, tremendous price pressure. Okay. Financing now, can you can you talk about um, how you financed the TMAC acquisition and just more broadly speaking, uh, whether or not low interest rates right now is uh, is are conducive to raising debt, or would you prefer to raise equity, or neither of those options? Well, we paid cash uh, for TMAC, and so we didn't want to dilute. So we see a tremendous upside in that asset in terms of overall uh, reserve resource and then production. Uh, for us, after sixty years, we only have two hundred and forty-five million shares outstanding. So it's all about per share value. How do we create? How do we? increase our owner's exposure to production per share, uh, to reserves per share. So we're in a position to use cash. Um, We see each and every quarter our net debt levels will come down. We're generating free cash flow, as we said, and still investing uh, in the future. Um, But I think what we've done successfully over 60 years, we're still here. Um, And I've seen over my 36 years, many of our peers uh, disappear because they took largely, in most cases, too much financial risk. So we're very mindful. I'm an accountant, so I watch that carefully. We're very mindful of ensuring that we have a significant financial flexibility to continue to invest in the future, not increase the overall risk profile of the business. In terms of interest rates, um, I think that's one of the headwinds for, for gold at the moment. 
In addition to a high stock market and a high US dollar as interest rates are moving up, those are three headwinds at the same time. You can argue that gold's actually done pretty well in the face of those three headwinds. And so um, I just think we're in a position where as an industry, uh, you stay focused, you stay disciplined, you focus on adding ounces uh, through exploration and building out your pipeline. And I think the gold price is gonna look after itself and, and, and be fine. Do you think those headwinds are likely to stay in the market for a considerable amount of time, Sean? Um, it's hard to say, but I think that, you know, the stock market's been going up for a number of years. I think interest rates, uh, given the debt levels, and you referred to them, David, I think you need to step back. Uh, and I think the conditions that got gold to 1700 prior to the pandemic are still very much in play, where debt levels continue to rise, economies uh, can't keep pace in terms of the, the rate of economies to the rate of growth of debt. And it's really about uh, hard assets versus paper assets at the end of the day. And, and, and hard assets uh, will win that. Um, and it just may take some time. So I think that's why companies just need to stay focused on keeping their businesses uh, high quality, low risk, and take advantage of opportunities um, to just improve the quality of the underlying business. I'm wondering for a miner, do you consider uh, monetary policy or the direction of interest rates as a consideration for changing the capital structure of your firm? So the percentage of debt versus equity on your books? Yeah, um, not really. I think we look at it, we're investment grade um, and that's uh, really the, the key parameter we always look at. Back in 2014, when we partnered with Humana to uh, acquire Osisco, we had to write a half a billion dollar check uh, in addition to issuing stock. Um, but we quickly made sure uh, the following two years after writing that check, uh, we made sure we reduced um, our credit lines, which we drew on there. So it's always about managing financial risk and um, you never want to put yourself in a position where you have too much debt. Our net debt to EBITDA is dropping. Uh, we're in a strong financial position. Uh, we're risk averse when it comes to, uh, to when it comes to debt and debt levels. Okay. And uh, finally, I'd like to talk about, uh, well, two things. Um, your outlook on the mergers landscape, we talked about TMAC, and I'd like to get sort of your outlook on whether or not more M&A activity is expected in the mining sector, given where the gold price is currently and given uh, sentiment in the gold market. Uh, first of all, do you usually see more deals done at a lower gold environment or a higher gold price environment? Um, I, I think generally higher. I, I think the experience has been in, in all the resource spaces uh, when you tend to get commodities uh, pricing move, whether it's oil or gas or, or gold or base metals, you tend to get more consolidation. I think from a gold industry perspective, it's pretty fractured in terms of ownership relative to something like base metal. So there's far too many players relative to the number of high quality opportunities that exist out there. We've been saying that for years. So the industry actually needs smart consolidation uh, so that assets end up getting into stronger hands uh, because the business isn't getting any easier. It's getting much more complex. Uh, as we like to say, mining's tough enough. So you got to keep the risk levels low and focus on the basics. So I think you'll likely see uh, more consolidation. Um, and I think for the most part, it, it'll be disciplined where you're, 
you know, combining things and um, that actually strengthen and end up with a better business overall. So that's what we look for going forward. I don't think you're going to see rampant consolidation, but I think there's uh, there'll be more as we move out over the next uh, one to two years. And what about the um, technological innovation experienced by the sector? Investors have have pointed out that oil, the oil sector, for example, has seen has seen many phases of technological innovation. They've had their fracking moment. Where is where is mining? Where is the gold mining's fracking moment? And uh, why have we well, not seen tremendous progress in the yeah. field? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, uh, you know, I don't see, and the industry doesn't see, um, you know, this fracking moment where the whole industry is um, turned upside down because of some uh, innovative breakthrough. I think people point to the last time this happened uh, would have been heat leach technology where uh, the industry took very low grade deposits and turned them into important parts of the business. I think these are sort of moderate uh, steps that we'll see is it from uh, an industry perspective, things like uh, using more automated equipment. Uh, that's a safer way to go, a uh, more cost-effective way to go. Uh, there's still um, a bit more to do from the technological uh, perspective, particularly in underground context when you've got multiple pieces of moving equipment. Um, Let me put it uh, to you this way, Sean. If a tech company were to approach you and say, hey, Sean, I have, I have, I have technology at my disposal, I, I could build you whatever you want. Uh, list me the dream technology that you would need, that you would want to have at your disposal. Let's say it's Christmas, it's coming up. What would you want to have that could significantly bring down your all sustaining costs and perhaps even uh, significantly increase production at a much faster, faster pace and perhaps even make exploration much easier? What would you, what would you yeah, like to see? The, that's, a, that's a big wish list, but I think... <laughs> The trend in the industry has been declining grades. And so okay. we're basically finding nature where a lot of the easy deposits have been found. And, and so that's the challenge over the next 10 to 15 years to um, not only grow, but grow in a way where you're actually adding quality to your business. So anything that could um, uh, improve our ability to recover gold from low grade deposits. Um, we're working on technology around ore sorting. Um, so that we could take lower grade deposits and make them a higher return project. So it's really what technology will allow us to take lower grade deposits as an industry and turn them into um, significant businesses. And that's what happened back with heat leaching technology, where there was a lot of material in Nevada, which just didn't work uh, to put it through a conventional mill. But heat leach technology basically um, turned that into an extremely successful businesses a business and, and look at the two big companies in our industry, Barrick and Newmont have a strong base in Nevada. So um, ability to improve recoveries and extract gold, low grade deposits okay. uh, could be a potential game changer. John, I want to thank you so much for coming on Kickout today and giving us your update on both the economy and your company. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, David. Nice to be here. And thank you for watching Kickout News. Stay tuned for more coverage. I'm David Lynn.